0: In conversation with Stephen Naryoff, he is a prolific investor and advisor in blockchain and really created the legal structure that still stands today when it comes to tokenization. And that's certainly how he helped fuel, you could say, Ethereum to where we see it today. And now as chairman of Casper Labs, how are you thinking about the evolution on top of the revolution that we saw in 2008. So welcome, Steve. How Thank are you. we seeing this? Uh,
1: well, so, you know, when Bitcoin kind of exploded onto the scene, that was a paradigm shift. It was a revolutionary new technologies. I can interact with you. In that case, they were sending value, what we call Bitcoin today, and we didn't need a third party in the middle. Like, that is a radical concept, really, for, in human history, we've never actually been able to do that. And I can trust you because of the way the technology is operating. Uh, and so now we're seeing many iterations of that. So we're seeing a whole economy happening in terms of tokenizing, and uh, they're called utility tokens, but they're, it's, it's a whole new economy of things that we haven't seen before. Um, and then on the other side, uh, you're just kind of seeing like Wall Street 2.0 with security tokens, and it's the same underlying technology. Uh, and I like to say that they have the same grandfather and Satoshi with Bitcoin, but the grandchildren are kind of going their own way. Um, And they both arguably are forming the largest markets ever known to mankind.
0: Well, you're almost creating an economy though, some would argue, without actually having the proof case or the utility case. And so there are a lot of teams and a lot of talent in the space right now that are trying to figure out the efficiencies or even enterprise solutions. But that mass adoption, that moment in time, the average person says, yeah, I get it. I'm going to use my crypto asset and I'm going to get something of value in return.
1: so what we haven't seen yet is we haven't had that, you know, for the internet, it was the Netscape moment. Netscape hit, you looked at it, the internet was always there, you know, it had been there, but all of a sudden now you saw pictures and it was a visual experience, and that kind of changed the whole thing. That was the day the commercial internet was born, and then it went from thousands of people to millions of people to billions of people in pretty quick order. And the same thing, the same thing's going to happen here. Uh, so in two thousand nine, ten it was a very small number, very small community. You're starting it to grow, and what we haven't had, and it's only been ten years. Remember, the internet started as the ARPANET in the sixties, and then it didn't actually. The commercialization until 1994, so was 30 years. We've only 10 years into this. I think it's gonna go a lot faster, but what we haven't had is that killer app, uh, and we haven't had our Netscape. I think one of the reasons we haven't had it is because we haven't had a protocol, so a blockchain that is um, what they call the holy Grail mm-hmm. so there's three aspects to blockchain one is security it has to be fully secure the other one is decentralization mm-hmm. it has to be fully decentralized and the other one is that it should scale quickly to mm-hmm. so do a lot of transactions per mm-hmm. second um, and the ones that have happened so you see like Bitcoin and ethereum they're super secure um, they uh, are totally decentralized or they just haven't been able to scale a lot Mm-hmm. They weren't really intended to from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Bitcoin's case, they don't want it to scale anymore. Uh, they're saying it's fine. When
0: you say scale... Does this mean transactions?
1: Sorry. So scalability, right, is is the ability to do a lot of transactions per second. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, let's say, the Visa Mastercard network, yeah, you know that typically does about a thousand to two thousand transactions per second on, you know, on average, right? And so if you can't do that, bottlenecks start clogging, mm-hmm. and so you will do a. You could charge your Visa card. And you could be sitting there, you know, paying for your dinner for another week.
0: Well, I can't imagine standing there and waiting for that transaction to happen.
1: And if you had Visa, MasterCard, and credit cards, it would have never taken off. And so the ability for transactions to happen fast is absolutely essential for a new technology to be adopted by everyday people. They need to have that convenience and speed. Otherwise, it just won't, it won't
0: work. All right. We often talk about proof of work as a technology, right? That confirmation that allows that consensus to happen very right. quickly. Bitcoin is um, very slow, right? And then Ethereum is, is slightly faster. But there are new protocols that are being birthed every That's day. Right. The That's grandchildren right. are populating That's the right. earth. But new protocols. So what is Casper Labs so, doing? you kind of spend a lot of just doing something different,
1: rather than using mining equipment to generate random numbers and uh, use that as a consensus. What we're doing is what's called proof of stake. Um, and you actually buy the tokens and you stake the tokens. And through that process with a lot less computing power um, and different types of less expensive computers, you can actually do the same amount of consensus. What that allows you to do then is move many more transactions per second and potentially keep the same security. So that's super important. You have to have a secure network. So this, this evolution, this is an evolution um, in the proof of stake, has been super important. The problem has been that everybody who's implemented this has had some form of centralization. Uh, what that means to, to, in practical terms is there is, when you have centralization, that means that there could be potential malicious action. That means a third party or a hacker could potentially do something. And let's say, for example, you did a transaction last week. I sent $1,000 to somebody. Somebody else could potentially reverse that transaction and maybe have the money sent to them. Uh, so this is obviously a very important thing when we're talking about...
0: Because nobody has actually proven proof of stake yet.
1: No, it hasn't. Well, it ha- nobody has come out with a... Proof of stake, um, they've shown it to work. But nobody's had a fully decentralized proof of stake. They've always had some element of centralization in order to make it move fast, so you right. can do these a lot of transactions per second. So you could serve a lot of people globally. And the exciting thing about Casper Labs and why uh, so many of us came together, a lot of industry folks that have been around for a long time, is because um, a really prominent Ethereum researcher. Probably the most prominent one is Vlad Zamfir. And what Vlad came up with was, in my opinion, as big of an invention as what happened 10 years ago with Satoshi and the equally in- impressive one that happened with Italic and Ethereum, and basically adding intelligence, more or less, mm-hmm. to Satoshi's invention. And Vlad figured out a way to actually scale those inventions. And so you've got this beautiful, like 10 years ago, 5 years ago now, mm-hmm. um, where you have this invention, now we actually have the ability to scale. That's really important because the companies that are coming on to the blockchains right now, they're not building for thousands of transactions like Visa or MasterCard for something that can actually go global, service billions of people. Like a Facebook or a Google, mm-hmm. they're they're building something that only could do maybe ten or twenty or thirty transactions mm-hmm. per second, just sort of like a very small group. And most of those projects tends to be like concept or or trials or small things that companies are doing. They're actually not thinking in terms Scaling. of when really service the whole world. Yes. So if you imagine Facebook would create a little proof of concept instead of the full Facebook for everybody, they can only service you know maybe a town. Right? It wouldn't be very interesting. And by definition, you wouldn't have something like a Netscape or Facebook that would go to billions of people.
0: And so what are the, what are the uh, adoption cases that you can envision with really primary use cases for what's coming out of Casper Labs?
1: Well, the great thing about this is with decentralization, it's a new way of thinking. Mm. So it's not just saying we're going to take e-commerce and put it on the blockchain, right? I mean, that's... Yes, there will be some of that, right? But it's a lot more than saying a decentralized Facebook or a decentralized eBay. You know, there's new models that we would have never even thought about. Like? Well, I mean, if you think about it by way of analogy, you can think like the internet plus GPS gave birth to Uber. We would have never thought about an Uber or an Airbnb. We would have never thought about these things before, uh, those technologies coming together. I think we are going to see here is also similar. We're going to see blockchain combined with things like artificial intelligence or blockchain compared with things like uh, Internet of Things. Internet of Things, for example, is projected to be a $17 trillion economy. Yeah. That's about the size of like the U.S. economy and similar to the U.S. and China. That's how massive it is.
0: How does the average user the average person factor into this economy this so the, new economy
1: so the average user is going to have the wonderful benefit that they have with the internet but much much greater because they're going their lives are going to be absolutely improved by this right. but uh, well the, the fact that you and i can interact with each other without intermediaries that opens up a whole new world mm-hmm. right so now uh, the early use cases that you're seeing is like remittance you know, I have somebody in a third world country, and I want to send money back to my third world country. I left, I went to a first world country. Now, it was very difficult for me to do that. Remittance was, you know, there was a barrier to the banking industry that just passed There's had a lot restaurant. of friction,
0: and a third a party, friction. and of course, you know, a lot of financial fees that are right. attached.
1: absolutely. Transaction fees. And you, you see, it's actually life and death in some cases. You absolutely. see um, Venezuela, during this crisis that they're having, Bitcoin usage is a sword through the roof. Because... For the first time I can walk out across the border with all of my assets and not, I have nothing in my hands. All of my assets and there's nobody that can touch those. So I can keep them in Bitcoin and when I move I just have to have my information to be able to access that, which nobody else has, and then I can access it after I'm over the border. This is like this is this is revolutionary, right? this Do This is you never have the happening. test net? I'm sorry? The testnet? Yes. And mainnet? Yeah. Mainnet will be up this year.
0: Up this year? Yes. And a lot of people are wondering about a roadmap, what does that strategy
1: look like? So the roadmap will be um, focusing on mass adoption. Right? So we've spent a lot of years here building out this technology, thinking about the different things it could do, and now our goal is to get this out to the world. We want to serve billions of people, not millions and not hundreds of millions, like literally the whole world. And eventually, if you know like the internet, TCPIP is the protocol that everybody agreed upon. It's servicing 7 or 8 billion people, however many actually on it, but everybody can go on it. Right now, we don't have that, so we're hoping to give that gift to the world. And it's important to note it's an open source project. Once we've developed the mainnet and we launch it, basically send it out into the wild. You know, It's humanity's gift at this point. We will be a contributor to it at that point, but we don't own it. So All right, really well,
0: great. we've talked to a lot of protocols, um, and some are talking about the open source and the need for public blockchain. What we're also seeing are people like Hedera Hashbath or Hashbath, right, and uh, thinking that, you know, to be open source truly is to also potentially open up for dilution of talent or even um, uh, uh, undermining the very ethos, uh, which sounds almost ironic, right, but to at least place some sense of control so that it moves forward rather than forking and yeah. you know diluting and teams are separating what's your this sense is, of This is this is why
1: people uh, blockchain is so amazing It's because Open source, it's its a great, great, I think the best example ever of open source. You can look like a company um, like Microsoft. So Microsoft was the, the epitome of proprietary, closed source, license, we control the market, we're monopolistic, and they bring a new CEO, and in a couple of years, he's completely changed the culture. He's now saying, we're shipping things out, it's open sourcing everything, and we're just gonna be a contributor to that. And what you realize by doing this, Human nature, I don't know if it's human nature, but the way we've been trained is probably a better way of putting it, has been that if I own it, I'm going to make a lot more money because of percentage-wise. But what we're realizing is actually if we send it out and humanity owns it, but I have a piece of that, I'm going to have a thousand times bigger pot. So I may only need 2% of that to get a way bigger percentage than I would have had. So actually you're seeing for-profit public companies doing this as a smart strategy for their shareholders and it's also a smart strategy for development because you're getting developers that are passionate. You can't possibly hire all of these people from all around the world. So you're gonna get the best minds because they'll be attracted to it and there's an easy way for them to just come into it. So it's really you know, the gift of open source, blockchain has just really grabbed onto because Satoshi used it as an open source project himself and it is bringing about a lot of these, these amazing changes.
0: As a lawyer, you think about structure, you think about the, the, you know, the structure of economies, the structure of deals. How about the structure of where we are today with blockchain? Went from ICO, now we're talking about STO.
1: Yeah, so the ICO uh, was a, it was a a huge important development, right? So what that showed was that um, capital flow to where it was desired to go with the community, maybe there's only 40 or 50 million people globally. It's actually very small percentage-wise. You can see a rush of like... Tens of millions of dollars to going into a project and people chose to. Now, to be fair, a lot of these projects did abuse the process. So I'm not condoning that. What I'm trying to get is, let's go underneath that for a second. What it showed was that collectively, independent people all around the world could look at a project, open source project, and decide, I want to support that project and send resources to that project. So not just computing resources, but physical monetary resources to that project in the form of cryptocurrency. And there's a whole economy being built around that. Similarly, that technology has given birth to something called to security tokens, uh, and you know one project that I worked on is called T0, and they were, they were kind of like the first ones to start building this out. So Patrick Byrne from Overstock is really visionary in this, in this space, and what that is, that's really Wall Street 2.0. These are showing that we take a token, and by changing digital, which is just digits on a screen, we have something that's actually programmable. It means it's kind of a weird concept to understand, but I mean your stock or your bonds are programmable. Well, this is actually a really big deal because let's say a government's issuing bonds. Well, uh, there's schedules, there's payment schedules, and early fees, and all kinds of different things that they have to do in structuring that. That all can be taken care of with a smart contract. So it's lowering the barriers, lowering the cost, and it's making the capital move flow quickly. So now what you'll see is low-cost markets with capital flow that's going globally. So a transaction can happen in China, in the U.S., and South America, and amongst each others. And it's super important, it's peer-to-peer. So it's not going through some settlement layer. So I'm dealing directly, and it's settling, if you're selling me something, we're directly settling with each other through the use of the blockchain. And only the blockchain could have done that, but again, because you don't need an intermediary. You will. there's absolutely a place for banks and everything in here. In fact, their role is going to get even bigger in terms of because one of the other things is bringing is the tokenization of real assets. And now we're taking things like, let's just take this, this um, building that we're in right now. There is about $250 billion, no, trillion, excuse me, $250 trillion worth of physical real estate in the world that is illiquid, that right now... This is the first technology that allows us to now cause that to be liquid, and people can invest in those assets, we can create a token for an individual building, we can create a token for a restaurant inside of a hotel. You can get really specific, you know, microeconomies. I can have a token, not necessarily from Apple, the enterprise, but let's say I just want to invest in the red new iPhone 10 you know, uh, that particular model. I think that model is going to do well. Apple could actually very easily spin off a token that directly tracks the revenue stream off of that one phone model. This is like super important because now investors can get very particular in terms of what they want. And they can refine their choices. There's It also opens up investment to billions of people that don't have it right now. So I can invest, let's say I have a local coffee shop, um, and I don't have enough money to really invest in a, in, a, in a large public company. I don't want to put $50 into a local coffee shop. That coffee shop can now go public because the barriers and what we even think of as a public company is actually changing. Mm. So I envision a world in the not too distant future where instead of having a couple tens of thousands of public companies, we could have a couple million public companies. Mm. And so, but your definition of a public but company. And who is.
0: takes care of investor relations? Who takes care of the fiduciary responsibility that that one business or entity has to the millions of you know online or virtual investors that are probably anonymous?
1: Yeah, well. Not necessarily anonymous, right? Sure, so sure. you can absolutely have exchange of information, uh, but it changes the role of the company and the investor because now with so you have the utility tokens that so we're seeing in the ICOs, we have the security tokens. These two can come together. So you could have a token that says, "I want to have part of your revenue stream," what we normally think of like a stock. But at the same time, that token could say, "Well, if I have a thousand of these tokens, then I get a certain discount on your product." Or I'm getting mm. a certain type of benefit that's not available to anybody else if I have 10,000 of these. Right? So I just walk up, show you my wallet. And now, all of a sudden, your customers relations department and your investor relations department kind of start colliding with each other. And you're thinking about how you're interacting. And instead of saying shareholder-customer, maybe you start thinking of a stakeholder. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of the same pool. They start melding with each other. So now as a business, you can start looking at your supply chain and say maybe my, I want my suppliers to become investors in my business, and I'm going to give them a benefit in my relationship with them when they buy from me the more they're investing in the business. yeah, there's great synergies here. So companies can get super creative and make their ecosystem more cohesive and connect to other ecosystems.
0: What's the appetite from the regulatory uh, space in the U.S. when it comes to STOs? So I, th- I think
1: the, the, the regulators are taking a very cautioned approach. Uh, they're seeing this think they are starting to understand the ramifications here and to be fair it's not a simple um, task for them the the in the u.s we have these a uh, couple of acts uh, the SEC is under um, and they are now it's really around peg square hole issue they never envisioned they were uh, 1933 1934 they, nobody back then you know they were just they probably just got used to electricity, I mean, more or less. But now they're thinking about tokens and this new economy and something that can change and it does one thing for one person, like I said before, and a different thing in a different context. How do you regulate that? So it's, it's a difficult situation. I think what they need to do is they need to come up with new rules. In mm-hmm. the same time, they're trying to walk a very fine line by protecting investors because that's their main job is to protect investors. Second time, um, allow innovation to occur. It's incumbent upon them though to move with speed because what's happening is you're seeing that the U.S. is being a roadblock to international expansion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are, you know, when the, the, when the ICOs were happening, the U.S. came down hard and I think in many cases it was certainly warranted. So I'm not, but it, it showed there's a negative aspect to that. What mm-hmm. showed is that it stopped it globally. Yeah. And maybe you would have wanted that particular issue to stop. that's not only really the issue, is that it's also stopping development of the technology for Wall Street 2.0, for example, and in other areas, because you want to stop it here, but then you want to fix it in a way that allows the technology to proliferate while still protecting people. And they haven't taken that second step yet. But, to be fair, we're still in the middle of this process. Yeah. So I think they're, they're moving... Um, other countries are moving much faster Yes, and you're seeing countries like Malta and other countries in Asia and even some South American countries moving much more rapidly with their, with their um, uh, Zug in Switzerland is another great example, Estonia, so these countries are popping out, you know, some are established countries like Switzerland, some are less established uh, and what you're seeing is innovations flowing there. You're seeing in the U.S., we're seeing uh, uh, entrepreneurs leaving to go to those countries and start set up operations over there, and you see those economies starting to flourish, and innovation is starting to happen. So I think, you know, they're certainly on the forefront, and there's, uh, if they continue to stay at the forefront, they will um, birth entire new economies. If you go to Zug in Switzerland, you'll see it's called Crypto Valley, and there's a ridiculous number of of uh, blockchain companies there some are billion plus companies that didn't even exist mm. and in many ways Switzerland is you know hundreds of thousands whatever it is years old in terms of the banking industry and that was their mainstay and now they're like this is whole new you know, technology play. They really weren't involved in technology before. And this technology plays really super important to them because it brings not only technology, but it's also Wall Street 2.0 to them. Yeah. Um, and so I think countries like the United States and other established countries, certainly China, Japan, um, need to take notice of that.
0: You're a structure guy at the end of the day. How do you apply that structural thinking, thinking about building foundations, thinking about building infrastructure for something that is completely decentralized?
1: Yeah, so your thinking needs to change in terms of how you are applying it. What you Mm. need to start thinking about is how does this serve an ecosystem, Mm. right? So it's not, well, this party or that party, you know, how do these rules apply to an ecosystem? Mm. And it's, it's a different way of thinking, you know, certainly, we're talking about blockchain governance. You know, how do you manage disputes in a blockchain? If I have a smart contract and we have a dispute in our smart contract and it executes and I disagree with the way it executes, how do you solve that? How do you solve that? There's no simple answer. What you need to do... You know, there's a big debate right now, um, and part of the debate is do you just let it autonomously go and say this is the way it's going to be and that's it? Or do you allow participants to make changes to the blockchain over time and how it governs each other? Um, in fact, in, in our case, our chief architect, Vlad Zemfer, who came up with um, CASPER, CBC CASPER, he's also been a big proponent uh, on the legal side for this way of thinking about um blockchain governance, and these, you know, these two camps there. Mm. Um, there's some validity, you know, there's one camp in terms of not changing things, and that's more the Bitcoin, um, and that's just value transfer, but it's that argument breaks down a lot when you're talking about People interacting with each yeah. other, you know, and then having to deal with it in the, in the physical world. Yeah. Because, you know, we don't actually live on the blockchain. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, we're living on soil. Right. Um, and so it has to be brought back here because we have real courts here, you know, we have real buildings here, there's real people here. And sometimes that gets lost. And so you can be, say, we trust the code all we want, but at the same time, the judge with his gavel doesn't have to say that either. You know, and if he makes it illegal, that's a problem. So we have to you know, think these things through. And yeah, you know, it's a. this is, as much as the technology is starting to take hold, you have to remember this is affecting all other aspects of society. The legal system is one area that it's affecting. And they haven't even started getting their hands around it. There's cases, haven't even made it to the trial, let alone appellate. My guess is it's a probably another 10 years before we start seeing real clarification in that area.
0: Well, 10 years is like, centuries in blockchain but it has been such a pleasure um this has gone by in a flash thank you i've learned a lot thank you so much my pleasure